gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, welcome to this week's review segment for Fighting in the War Room, episode 14. It's uh, March, March 14th, and it's still chilly here in New York for some reason. We haven't gotten to spring yet. It's very upsetting, but at least there are movies to invigorate us with with heat, perhaps. I don't know. That will be argued uh, in this week's double review section. Uh, Later in the show, we will have um, Angie Han of Slash Film on to discuss the Veronica Mars movie for all the marshmallows out there and for all the non-marshmallows out there. I would definitely give it a listen if you are a non-fan because I think this movie does a pretty good job catering to you. Um, But first, first we are going to have a discussion on the new uh, action racing blockbuster something obnoxious film in some people's opinions need for speed uh, and to do that since all of my co-hosts have abandoned me uh, i have brought on glenn dunks glenn hello hello how is everyone <laughs> i i'm alone and wonderful no everyone out there i'm sure is good too glenn <laughs> tell people about yourself where where do you write what do you do I am a freelance film critic and writer from Australia, but I am currently based here in New York City. Uh, So I write mostly for Australian uh, magazines and online places, but you may, some people may know me from my obsession with Twitter. <laughs> I Well, uh, that's where I found your comments for Need for Speed. I don't know if you're writing a full review somewhere, uh, some crazy Australian newspaper, perhaps, down under. Uh, but most of your work can be found online. But yes, I found your comments about Need for Speed on the tweets, um, and I, I couldn't resist. I had to have you on. We're not diametrically opposed on Need for Speed, thank God, um, but I don't think we're exactly on the same page um so just to give people a little background on this movie i don't know glenn what's important to know plot wise about this movie aaron paul is in it breaking bads aaron paul and uh he races cars (laughs) yeah he races cars and then he then there's an accident someone dies he gets sent to jail and then when he gets out he wants to continue to race cars, and he then wants to like get revenge on the person who should have gone to jail. And then <laughs> I don't really know. There's no. He's pr- it's pretty he straightforward. Has about as much plot as an, as uh, the Need for Speed game, which it is apparently based off of. I actually but, think it does a good job of being based on the games. As someone who's played really? those games, yeah, because it's very much about like outrunning the police. And sometimes you drive through traffic, and they're like real street-based racing. Uh, so there's a lot of mayhem, as opposed to some a more fantastical racing situation like Fast and the Furious. But we'll get there. Um, but it's pretty faithful to the game. There's even a sequence where Aaron Paul and his rival Dominic Cooper, who plays Dino Brewster, um, and Aaron Paul's character is named Toby Marshall, and these two are trying to pick the like Italian roadsters they're going to race each other in for the first time and like three garage doors open. And I thought that was very video gamey because <laughs> in, in video games, you like scroll through different garages to decide what car you want. I don't know. Silliness. The but- most, the, the closest I thought it got to the game was the, uh, the way that 
during the big final climactic race sequence, everyone who's not actually at the race just seems to be watching it on a computer monitor <laughs> with just little uh, diamond dots like yeah. gradually moving around a racetrack, like that little box that you see in the corner of your of the Need for Speed racing screen. But that's, that's true to life, Glenn. No one's interacting <laughs> ex- these days. <laughs> I can't think of a more exciting way to watch an illegal drag race across California than on a laptop with just little little diamonds moving across hey, the screen. Hosted by hosted by vlogger Michael Keaton. Uh, he yeah, Michael he, Keaton oh, plays the mastermind of this big race that Aaron Paul's character is going to go out to San Francisco and beat his rival in, and um, it's it's a strange plot because Aaron Paul's this kind of like down and dirty guy from upstate New York, and he's just a townie. He runs a, a local um, chop shop or. or He's a mechanic, whatever. And but he's a good nice guy cars. because the chop yeah. shop was used to be his dad's. Yeah, he's a hard and gold, it, It's like a man's boy. business. Like <laughs> he gets his hands dirty, man. <laughs> he's a he's a he's a real gent. He's a real yeah, man. But they're going bankrupt, of course. Because yes. people have moved on from. Well, that's because they only do racing. good work. They won't take scummy work, uh, like oh, Dino yes. Brewster, who wants them to to standards. kind of rebuild this Ferrari for them or something, some fancy car. I am not a car person. And, um, but there are some slick automobiles in this film. And I Dominic Cooper wants them to. Oh, it's a Mustang. You're right. That's like the plot point that I can't remember. Um, but yeah, that's how Dominic Cooper's character comes back into his life. And yes, as you mentioned, there's a big race where someone's demise. Thank God, because the character who dies is extremely annoying. Um, yeah. And so I was glad. That was a that was a highlight of the film for me. I cheered when I he died. I feel bad for that actor because I've seen him <laughs> in lots of things before because he's an Australian actor, and he's not. He's been quite good in the past. And he, but here he's just given like. He's this blown to bits. Terrible written character who like is given such piss poor dialogue. <laughs> and he then makes like jokes. Yeah. Like and of course he's like I mean, of course he's bad. He has to act opposite Aaron Paul. Oh wait, no. Who is who is giving him nothing? <laughs> no, wait a nothing. second. I, 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 we'll get there. But I, I, what I find interesting, just on a plot level for Need for Speed, is you're right. There's not a lot going on in this movie. As soon as Aaron Paul gets out of jail, he's framed for the death of his buddy, and Dino Brewster drives into the sunset. He's fine. So two years later, he gets out of jail, and he's driven <laughs> to get back into uh-huh. racing and and take down Dino. Um, and to do this, they have to have this like cross-country road trip um, because Emojin Poots plays this girl who's basically the proxy, I think, for like a rich European guy who buys fancy cars, and Aaron Paul fixed one up for him at some point. So she is coming back to America, lending him this car so that they can drive across the country and I guess stir up enough trouble along the way to get noticed in order to actually be worthy of this race um, called, I don't know, Los Reyes or something. And... um, and yeah, so so nothing happens in the movie. The big there's no there aren't a lot of races, um, but there are a lot of like they're stirring up trouble and they're they're just vehicular carnage, uh, which I think it is, is a highlight. Minutes. It's hundred. It's an unbelievable hundred thirty minutes of like, uh, and really boring. It is plot unbelievable stuff. how long this movie is. And can I just ask? Is it emojin poots? I, have I been pronouncing it wrong all this time? You might be right. I I, I will I never it look it up. Imogen. Is it, what is it? Imagine? Imagine. 
Imogen. That makes more sense. Then, really, if that's what uh, this movie is, has made me done, just only reconsider the way her name is pronounced. And it's like <laughs> a very, very bad job. Yes. She's the best thing about She really is. She really is. Which, which is sad because the film it like goes to extraordinary lengths to make jokes about her to insult her to insult women in general well her whole point is like coming back that she is defying stereotypes that these manly men have put in place she is good with cars she can drive and she can look good doing it yeah, it's empowering, is, right? There is a scene where she saves Aaron Paul's life because of her driving, and then half an hour later, there is Aaron Paul's character makes a hilarious women can't drive joke. Like <laughs> that's true. What? I don't even. I can't. No, the whole film I thought was incredibly misogynistic, and not in that way that like people said like Wolf of Wall Street was misogynistic, sure. where it was just where it was like these characters were just terrible people i actually think the film need for speed and the people who wrote it are incredibly sexist let's hone in on that is that what it is is it's just the the relationship between aaron paul and uh, emoji poots um, <laughs> sitting, How sitting, because they spend most of the movie. Her name can we get <laughs> exactly? Uh, they spend most of the movie kind of sitting in a car together. They don't have to do a lot, um, but they have. I thought they had chemistry, and there was a respect there. I mean, yes, he still cracks jokes that don't really make sense towards the end of the movie. Um, but do you think that Need for Speed exudes this like false sense of masculinity or this misogynistic yeah. tone? Or, in other yes, places beyond just this, like, cracking wise about women driving? Well, I just, I thought that whenever the male characters did something reckless, they, like, get, you know, championed by other characters for it. Like, yeah, you got us out of trouble there or whatever. But then when when, a, when one of the, when the female character, like, there's a scene in a, uh, like, in a petrol station where she, the female character does something silly and gets them into all this trouble. And it's like, wow, this is all the woman's fault. If she just like not been there, none of this would have happened. But it's not just her. It, the Michael Keaton character takes every chance he can, he can to call her a tart and to in uh, all the other male characters, like just make sexist jokes throughout the movie. And then there's even a military officer a female military officer towards the end of the film who they seem they decide she needs to like throw a uh, custom to the wind, you know, protocol to the wind and allow a character who's in prison to watch an illegal drag race <laughs> on her iPad. <laughs> Kid Cuddy like, is too charming to say no to. Oh my god. Oh, is that who it was? Yes, Kid that's Cuddy. Kid Cuddy. Oh, because I saw the the name in the credits. I'm like, who is this Scott Miscuddy? Yes. <laughs> like, oh, that actually makes Aha. sense. That proves how invested I am with modern music, actually. I, I oh, found but- a lot to like about Need for Speed. I will totally admit that 130 Minutes, it is a grading film. Like, it, it is very annoying at times because the script is so poor. It is so poor. And all of these characters, I mean, they're spouting lines. It's They're either, like, imitating Top Gun inspirational bro lines or they're, like, reading from a, a car magazine or something. It just feels so cheap and, and cobbled together. 
I didn't get to what I thought was the worst moment oh. of uh, male uh, rara, yeah, excellence. <laughs> um, was that the film's end? There's a shot of a lighthouse. Oh yes. Now, I don't. <laughs> Is that a spoiler? <laughs> I don't. I I think everyone knows where this movie is going to end up. Uh, about ten minutes in, there's this shot of a lighthouse, and it is the most symbolic, symbolically phallic shot you can possibly what uh, have, and it is just <laughs> so like on the nose about like how about yes, men, we can do it. Uh, if like it just. I hated. How you really think you really think Need for Speed is so deep that uh, director Scott Wog would, uh, would would um, would plant that imagery in to like emphasize yes, yes, the male I perspective. I wow, I think he spends a lot of the movie trying to uh, show how great it is to be. I don't like using. I don't really want to use this language, but a bro, a bro dude. Right. Well, like, it's definitely about male camaraderie, like, male camaraderie and friendship. I mean, he previously directed oh, yeah, Act they of call Valor. Each other bitch. Yeah, that's. <laughs> he, he he directed Act of Valor, which is all about the military and and that kind of brotherhood aspect. And I think he carries a lot of that over to Need for Speed. And I actually like the movie when Aaron Paul and his crew are kind of like working together and actually being a team and having real camaraderie as opposed to like fake banter camaraderie there's a right. scene there's a scene in the movie where um they're you know they're racing to San Francisco and they don't have too many days to get there so they have to keep driving and at a certain point they can't actually pull over to fuel up they can't go to a gas station it's, it takes too much time so instead they fuel up while driving on a highway so his buddies are like trying to get this fuel trunk neck fuel truck next to him put in the um the pump and like actually fuel him up while they're moving at 100 miles per hour and as ridiculous as that is it's, one, very cool because like the other action in the movie, it's all practically done. Uh, this I can't stand Fast and the Furious anymore because it's all CG crap. Like, they barely shoot anything in real life because it's so bombastic and big, you can't really do it. At least the, the car stunts in Need for Speed are smaller scale um, and more intense because Scott Wog knows his way around angular uh, camera movements and, and cutting uh, and, and can really put these scenes together so when these guys are like hanging from a tanker trying to fuel up uh, uh, whatever the car is the the Mustang um, that's intense and really cool and there's moving parts and people working together and I get the the brotherhood there but I also understand what you're saying that I actually the the petrol refilling scene I actually kind of liked that scene I thought it was probably one the best one in the movie because there was actual it felt like there was a, a People sense of real world danger like right. something like it was <laughs> this is an odd movie to bring up into the conversation of need for speed but footloose the scene where the where the woman is you know straddling the two cars and you know there's one coming at them it's like ah what do you do like there was that sort of uh palpable energy to it even though the scene was completely ridiculous but what about what about the something scenes to it that allowed it to succeed? Whereas I thought most of the uh, action driving sequences, I was too distracted by how little they uh, 
corresponded to the real world. There was nothing about them that felt real to me. Like even the driving sequences as well as well stunt choreographed as they were, I just it lacked anything that felt like the real world because all these characters were just plowing through cop cars and destroying civilian vehicles as if <laughs> they had nary a care in the world. I I understand that moral argument and I've seen many people make it that they're like it's so haphazard and these guys have no care for their surroundings and they're just yeah. destroying things. Um, and, and I can understand that. I don't feel that guilt while watching Need for Speed. It's only in retrospect that I start considering that. In the moment, I found it very intense and just like watching them kind of swerve through traffic and knowing that it's real, feeling that it's real through the camera. It's not like my knowledge of how the movie was made. I can tell that this is real because there's real cars and they're really smashing each other. And, you know, I am an opponent of the GoPro camera, these like small little cameras you can plant yeah. onto anything. And if you want to throw a boulder down a cliff and put a GoPro camera on it, you can probably do it and you'll have that perspective. Cool. Or you can plant one of these in a car on a roof or under a car and you get a different angle, but it's a shitty, it looks like crap, and that's what you sacrifice, so I can't stand it. Um, if you saw Getaway, the whole movie is shot with GoPro cameras. It looks disgusting. Um, but here, I think Scott Wall really uses it to emphasize and kind of make these moments pop, like he'll flash to a GoPro shot and then cut right back, and he has other camera rigs attached to his cars that are as high quality as the vistas he's shooting when they're driving through the Grand Canyon or something. And I don't know, that brings an intensity to it. When you're driving at other cars, that's crazy. And like actually crashing through gas stations and stuff, and I'm watching things blow up, that seems realer to me. Um, and it gets intense. I, I mean, it, it loses something by not having characters that are worth a damn. But um, at least in that moment, I was kind of, I was there. See, I found the I found the GoPro. Is that what it's called? GoPro? Okay. Yeah, GoPro. I found that kind of annoying because I wanted to see the stunts. Like I wanted to see these cars, you know, flip over seven times and then roll over a cliff. But I, you get you get they, some of that. There are like they're shooting scenes so, in Detroit like, where they're jumping it's edited like, through a wood chipper. It's just <laughs> like cut to here, there, everywhere. It's like ah <laughs> just like stop. For a moment, I just like I want to be able to see what is happening instead of cutting like five different angles every like half a second. But there are some elegant car stunts in this. I, there was a moment in it, and this is kind of a throwaway gag, but it's the stuff like this that make the movie shine a little more for me. Where uh, Aaron Paul's character will be driving, and he'll for some reason, and this is not logical at all, but he will skid his car to a stop. And he'll come from the horizon and will kind of like spin in a circle and skid and stop right where the camera is. And it's just perfectly composed. And then he gets out. And it's just like, well, you didn't really need to do that. And so it's not believable. But it's cool because we can just feel the energy of pulling off that stunt. Everything hit its mark and it looks beautiful. And I think that's what Need for Speed is really about. I mean, if you're going to see this movie on a big screen, it's about those kind of moments where they just nail the, the insane stunt. Yeah, I would say if you're seeing it on the big screen, not to worry about 3D because why I is this my, movie in 3D? I I, didn't I took even my know glasses me. off for like a 20 minute stretch and I didn't really notice anything <laughs> different. But you mentioned uh, skid marks, and okay, there's this whole big thing that like they make that the cops couldn't prove there were three cars involved in this early crash sequence that kills the main character, a like side character. Right. 
And it's like um, there would have been like not only do they admit to having like witness testimonies saying there were three cars, but there would have been skid marks all over the road. Uh, so I'm like the the pol- the police are represented so badly in this movie. Right. They are. <laughs> so inept at their job and then the whole final sequence they're trying to stop this illegal drag race because you know how dare they stop this race where cars are driving 200 miles per hour on public roads and they're treated just like like lego cars or something you just draw they just get plowed right through and it's just (laughs) it is ridiculous it goes to what i was saying about like this sense of like real life there there's none of it i didn't believe that the cops wouldn't be able to prove there were three cars on that highway i don't believe that uh all this this illegal drag racing could be like unfollowed like this guy drives literally across country and no one catches him it it seems quite ridiculous i i agree that the impetus for this story makes absolutely no sense and it continues to make no sense as they need to fill the movie with more stuff like when they go to they drive to detroit to pick up one of their friends and have this whole to do there about like catching the police catching the police's attention and that's how they're going to catch the eye of michael keaton's crazy vlogger guy Uh, and it just doesn't make any sense but i don't think it makes less sense than any fast and the furious movie i don't know why those movies get off scot-free when this movie is in everyone's crosshairs I feel like the Fast and the Furious movies, at least now, have kind of adopted this, an admission of guilt almost, in that, like, they know they're silly. Like, you've got, like, cars, like, trailing uh, giant uh, safes that they've stolen from a bank in Rio de Janeiro. Like, this, like, I'm... I think they're very keenly aware of how ridiculous their stories are. I don't think anyone involved in the making of Need for Speed watched the scene where Aaron Paul jumps out of his car and runs towards a fiery uh, wreck, screaming, no, in slow motion. Like, and, and, like, second guessing. Like, they thought that they were making, like, Shakespeare, it feels like. <laughs> I can, like... This this is so silly, and yet no one seems to have noticed that the reason that the Fast and the Furious movies succeed is because you've got actors who are fun and personable. And wow! Oh yeah, personable not, actors like Vin Diesel and uh, like the Paul Rock. Walker. Oh, the yeah. Okay, not like, but the Rock has personality, the, but the, not the, in Fast and the, the Furious. Best Fast and the Furious movies, the ones with the Rock in them. <laughs> And even like the side characters in those movies are far more are far more interesting from a screen presence form than everyone in this one except Imogen Poots. It's it's who, funny it's funny that you bring up the the bank heist scene from Fast Five because that seems to be the go to scene for everybody when when they're defending Fast and Furious. I'm like, do you remember that there's so much more of this series that is incredibly boring. I think the the vault scene might be one of the only practical stunts done in the last three movies, and that's I I'll, I I end up favoring Need for Speed because at least they shot real stuff going on. And yeah, and then you have Emoji Poots uh, smiling and and Aaron Paul scowling, and that's that's better than whatever Vin Diesel's dialogue is going to be in the next Fast the Furious movie. Yeah, I don't know. At least, but again, Vin Diesel at least kind of looks the part. I don't 
think Aaron Paul ever felt like. Let, let, let's end talking about Aaron Paul. So you do not oh. believe he is a he's leading man material. He did not impress you. Here. Okay. So now I'm I've never watched Breaking Bad. Okay. So I'm I'm coming to him with a disadvantage. That's, no, that's I, probably a good thing. Actually, people have told me he's a good actor, but I don't believe them. He spends like at least half of this movie sounding like Christian Bale's Batman, and like I talking thought... in indecipherable gravel-voiced riddles. <laughs> I thought he was more like, Harrison Ford, speak? Nick Cage, maybe Nick Cage from uh, Con Air type. <laughs> yes, and I just had. Like, I quite literally could not understand what he was saying in several scenes. He makes so many crazy faces. His mouth is agape for, like, 80% of the movie. I thought and it was quite astonishing. How did he think it was, like, appropriate to have an entire scene where he pretends to be mentally handicapped now, in order to get laughs? I saw you tweet sorry, that, but that what is... is that about? Like, what, what scene is that? I don't recall him being... It was uh, the Detroit scene where he's making noise outside the the building and the cop pulls up and I, at least this is what it looked like to me. He (laughs) pretends to be mentally handicapped in order to get away with like vroom vrooming the engine so much. I thought he was just being an asshole. (laughs) Well, there is possibly that. (laughs) Either way, it's bad. He acts like a crazy person and he does for a majority of this movie, which may be the reason I like him. I kept likening this back to... um, like an old Michael Bay movie, especially all the Nick Cage stuff or Simon West, Con Air. That's what this type of movie reminds me of. It's it's old school in terms of if if you can call the mid nineties old school. Um, <laughs> Fans of Dominic Cooper, who is like who has been. I've liked him in the past. I hate Dominic like, Cooper. His hair is as high as his forehead in this movie, and he is just a he's dreadful. I do not like Dominic Cooper. I do. I really hate Rami Malek. He's like, I can't believe him in any movie. He's just, I have no idea who you're talking about. He's the about. guy with the wide eyes. He's the Oh, friend. is he the one who's stripped? Yes, for no yeah, reason. Yeah, he has a strip scene. Oh and it God. is I, I admit that it was nice to look at. But then it ends again with this weird misogynistic joke with sexual harassment. We're like, of course this lady wants a naked man grinding against her in the I middle. thought that was inappropriate. I thought when he kissed his coworker I was I was a little Ugh, I thought it was skeevy. That was gross. <laughs> so I, I'm 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 kind of middling to thumbs up on this movie. Um Glenn, you would not recommend Need for Speed to anyone. This is not no, worth I, someone's time. Even if they're interested in stunt movies. I think it's a fail on pretty much every account possible. Unfortunately, <laughs> they got, yeah, I think it's an, an offense to uh, car drivers. I think it's an offense to uh, stunt people. I think it's an offense to women. I think it's an offense to moviegoers in general. It is, it is like just moronic in every possible way. I hated uh, it. Uh, lady law enforcement car drivers do not see Need for Speed. Speed! Okay, so to round out this week's review episode, I am joined by Angie Han of SlashFilm.com. Hello, Angie. Hello, Matt Patches. You're back. I can't remember what we reviewed last summer. 
I think it was The Spectacular Now. Oh, a wonderful film. Well, that's good. Um, So you were on a positive episode. All cheers. Um, I I think we're going to be mostly positive this episode uh, because we're going to talk about Veronica Mars, the long-awaited, long-gestating adaptation of this... uh, of this of this teen i guess it was on cw did it start on upn it started on upn and then after the merger happened it was it ended on cw yeah right so it's it's very much in the teen genre took place at high school detective show kind of a miss marpley uh yeah miss marpley mystery and um fans have obviously been awaiting this for a very long time because Veronica, for those who don't know, Veronica Mars was axed um, without really having a finale. I think season three happened. Everyone was waiting. Creator Rob Thomas was like, it might happen. And then all of a sudden the CW had upfronts and there was no Veronica Mars. So Veronica Mars was not coming back. And everyone was like, all the marshmallows as they call themselves. We were debating after the movie, Angie, why they actually call themselves marshmallows. It's some, throwaway comment or you are a fan i am and i believe it's a reference to a line in the first episode i don't really know though when veronica mars fans adopted that particular name i'm sure other people knew about it before i did but i found out that that's what we were called during the kickstarter (laughs) campaign oh that's when you realized that you were that you self-identified as a marshmallow that's when I realized that it's that we're not called Veronica Mars fans. We're called Marshmallows. They were like, you guys are all called Marshmallows. <laughs> Everyone needs like, a name oh, really? for their for their sect of fandom, I suppose. I, I would so. I would call myself a um, a stale marshmallow. Someone who watched Ew. most. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good term. Someone who watched s- s- some of the show um, but didn't follow through to the end. So season three is a complete mystery to me. Season two is a blur, and season one, I. I I know my season one. So, Angie, uh, just to give a brief rundown here, what do people need to know, if, if perhaps if they've never seen the movie before, um, to go into Veronica Mars feeling a little safe, like they have a little foundation? Um, that's a good question, but I would actually say that the movie, if anything, does too good a job of laying out everything you need to know. It opens with this montage with like a long voiceover about... Um, a lot of things that actually not all of them are even relevant to the movie. They're not so. relevant at all. <laughs> no, it explains a lot of things that ju- they, you know, they say it in the, in the opening montage and you're like, okay, so that's going to be part of the movie. And then it just like never comes up again. And I'm not really sure why that's there because fans would already know that stuff and non-fans don't need to know. Um, but I mean, I, I think if you're someone who's never seen the show and don't really know anything about it, the stuff you explained right now is really all you need to know probably Uh I mean, it's about a girl detective. It was kind of like a neo-noir thing, the TV show was. Um, and she lives in this, she lives in Neptune, California. Oh, yeah, that's the one thing I guess maybe we should bring up. She lives in Neptune, California, which is a, you know, pretty seaside Southern California town. And it's one of those towns where everyone is either really rich or really poor. And life is really terrible for the really poor people. And also, like I said, this is a neo-noir. So terrible things are just always happening. Yeah. There. There's like people being killed all the time. Angie, you're originally from California. I was curious if um, towns in California have this kind of socioeconomic strife and divide that really pit the rich versus the poor to the point of murder. But <laughs> uh, not in my town, at Fair least enough. not that I know of. I mean, granted, in Veronica Mars, there's in the original TV series, there were a lot of murders that were covered up. So maybe there were in my hometown. <laughs> I just didn't know. You didn't have a Veronica Mars to actually solve them. No, I was just one of those like oblivious extras in the background, I guess. 
of your of the Veronica Mars show taking place behind you. Um, right. So so yeah, so Veronica Mars. After, after when we pick up in the movie, she has kind of given up on being a detective. Her past has been, uh, you know, back and forth with different boys and romance and intrigue. And you know, the the main thrust of the show was that her best friend was murdered, and a lot of the people at her school kind of looked down upon her. And when she finally solved this murder, and it wasn't really her fault or any anybody or her dad's fault for accusing people. I don't know. She she rectified this problem that she had in high school, and she hooked up with uh, the guy who was tormenting her the most, probably, in the beginning of the show, this guy Logan, played by yes, who happens Jason to be, Doring. Right, who happens to be her dead best friend's boyfriend. <laughs> very weird. <laughs> and her um, ex-boyfriend's best friend. It's very, very incestuous, Neptune. Yeah. Um, also TV shows in general, but, you know. So I feel like Logan is someone you need to know, that there's a strong connection there. But by the time they went to college, Logan is a hothead. He he has a bad temper. He'll beat you up if you do the wrong thing. And unfortunately, he beat up somebody that Veronica was dating in college. Uh, his name is Piz. Sto- Actually, his first name is Stosh, which what kind of name is Stosh? I feel like Stosh is... Like, Stosh makes even less sense as a first name than Piz would. <laughs> okay. So his name is Stosh Piznarski, so everyone calls him Piz, and he's oh, just a nice, nice sad sack if guy. There's, apologies if there's any people named Stosh listening. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to all the Stoshes who listen to Fighting in the War Room. Uh, I'm being insensitive. That's probably like a name in a, in a country that it's very popular. I don't know. Anyway, digging my own grave. Piz gets the crap beat out of him in season three by Logan. So there's this like love triangle angle. And if that sounds really mushy, I'm very happy that that seems to be the only thread that carries over to the Veronica Mars movie and is played out really, really well. Um, I was surprised that, you know, the whole movie is about Veronica coming back to Neptune, picking up her detective gear and solving a mystery. Uh, Logan is, is in hot water because everyone thinks he murdered his girlfriend and yeah which by the way is like the eighth time that he's been accused of murder in the franchise as a whole it's just like thursday for him yeah so i'm wondering if this situation is actually more grating to someone who's watched and enjoyed the entire series as opposed to me who kind of let it go after season one or half of season two you know i was happy to see Veronica come back to Neptune, be with all her friends, um, but for it not to feel forced. And even the mystery itself ends up folding a lot of the old characters into it because, you know, this is an incestuous world, world, so characters are murdering each other, even if they're high school classmates who haven't spoken to each other in a while. Um, so everybody in the movie is a suspect, even all the people who are coming back just for like a cameo, uh, and which I think is really fun. But I can imagine it might be grating to someone who kept up with the show and would be looking forward to the movie. Um, honestly, I didn't think that it was grating. I was just, I, I was mostly just amused by the fact that Logan is in trouble again, because that's basically his role on the show <laughs> is for, you know, for him to be accused of something terrible and for Veronica to have to clean up his mess. It's a pattern that repeats itself over and over. I mean, you know, even in season one, that happens a few times, right? Um, I thought that they did a pretty good job of folding the cameos like, oh, yes, it's very convenient that the 10 year reunion happens to be the same weekend that Veronica has to go back and help Logan. But uh, you know, they for some reason did. I buy that mostly because she's so resistant to the idea of going to 
It is the best way the to get her to go to the 10-year reunion because she's obviously not the kind of, like, it wouldn't make sense for the character if she was just like, oh, I miss my old Neptune buddies. I'm going to go back. So if, you know, if you're going to bring in a bunch of cameos, this was the best way to do it. And I think it works pretty well for the most part. Um, and he does a pretty good job of kind of, you know, because he brings you back into the world of Neptune and reintroduces all these characters. And then the mystery starts to kind of fold some of them in. So I think I think that they did a pretty good job of of braiding all those threads together. Now, do you think that the movie justifies itself as a movie? Is this something that would just play on TV anyway? Or are they making a leap here to telling kind of a cinematic adventure? I think that the mystery genre has really disappeared from theaters. It's mostly just TV procedurals at this point, you know, compared to the 80s when you had actual, you know, I mentioned Miss Marple earlier, uh, not too long ago. 1980 was probably the last prominent Miss Marple theatrical movie, The Mirror Cracked, starring my beloved Angela Lansbury. Um, But, you know, we don't see a lot of movies like that unless it's nonstop, where there's a lot of head cracking and Liam Neeson growling and that sort of thing. So it's a big action movie, too. Um, But it was, I thought it was nice to see a mystery on the big screen. But I don't know if this is like the movie treatment people are expecting or not. I think it's nice to see a mystery on the big screen, but at the same time, it didn't. And I mean, part of this, I guess, is because, you know, I have always seen Veronica Mars as a TV show. But to me, it felt like it was just a really long episode of Veronica Mars. It didn't feel that much more cinematic than the average episode, at least in my opinion. I mean, granted, it's a little bit bigger scale. There's a lot more characters and certain scenes and stuff, but... Uh, if anything, it kind of felt like maybe this is the two-hour premiere to a whole new series. That's true. Not to, like, spoil everything that happens at the end, but you can imagine if uh, Veronica goes back to Neptune and starts uh, breathing the same air that she that turned her into a, a hotshot sleuth that she might feel that same urge. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's just nice. I, it's nice that they've matured the characters, too. I was surprised to see Logan... Being, you know, when we pick up with him, he's a Navy, he's not a Navy SEAL. We were trying to figure out what he is. He's he some mentioned kind of military. Jag. He, yeah, he does mention Jag. He's some kind of military man that involves him wearing a really crisp white uniform that Veronica gets really excited about. He just seems kind of like dead in the eyes at some point, too, where he's just militant, you know, he's, he's reformed. I guess that's his reformed version, where he was kind of a punk ass in the in the original series and hot tempered now he's 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 back he's he's a normal human being he's reformed for veronica it kind of felt to me like life had beaten him down a lot which considering everything that happens to him in seasons one through three and everything that he tells veronica has happened to him since well of course well that, that reminds me that um it was funny to go to the reunion and see all these old characters, but also see all these, you know, there's a lot of people who don't come back for the movie, mostly because they're dead or they've committed some horrific crime. Uh, and, like, where most high schools would have superlatives of uh, most successful or, you know, class clown or something, I feel like everyone just got a superlative for staying alive for four years through high school. And, like, it's, they even have an in memoriam at their reunion because that many people died. Yes, uh, it's, and it's almost as long as like that Game of Thrones in memoriam. <laughs> like seriously, so many people died. Um, so, so as a fan, but also as someone who sees a lot of movies and, and can judge fairly, I'm curious if what what this movie gets right and what this movie gets wrong for you. Um, I guess what 
what it got wrong. Well, okay. It to me, it felt like it didn't live up to the best of Veronica Mars to me. Um, like the storyline just wasn't quite as engaging. The emotional, the emotions weren't quite as deep. Uh, that said, I mean, it was like a mediocre episode or a mediocre storyline in Veronica Mars, which is still a pretty fun story. Why is it uh, a mediocre Veronica Mars story? I actually thought the mystery was pretty well constructed and integrated into all the character stuff. Like, I, I didn't see everything I agree everything coming. that it's well constructed. I think what it was was, uh, and part of this might just be because there's, you know, TV has a lot more time to build things up, but... You know, part of what I loved about the first show was just like, you know, I would like sit there and just be like so tense and, you know, these twists would come and like characters that I like, something bad would happen to them. And I'd be like, oh, my God, what's going on? You know, like it, it was like it was a really emotional experience. And I felt like the movie, for some reason, didn't quite get there. I don't know. I wasn't. Hmm. Um, I guess because the mysteries on the show had multi-episode arcs, which is unusual even by procedural standards today. It's a it's mystery of the week type thing whereas uh veronica mars had ongoing stories and here it might feel rushed not really rushed but i think they just don't have time to you know deepen it as much which you know like i said that's not that's a lot of that is too many suspects and too many threads because they all have to live within this movie which as you mentioned i think it does a really good job for me this movie stands alone uh, so anyone could go into this movie and enjoy it, I think, um, knowing anyone? that these guys are friends and coming to it with an experience of being out of – I'm about to celebrate my, my 10th high school reunion. I know you've blown past that, Angie. Um, wow. You make it – oh, my God. Blown pa- – you- You've blown past it because you're so successful is what uh-huh, I mean. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I'm about to celebrate my 10th soon and I can – I just know what that feeling is like seeing everyone and reconnecting and feeling the old feelings. Feel all the feel as they say on the internet. Um, So I don't think you really need to know how complicated Veronica and Logan's relationship is or why Piz might be offended that Veronica's spending so much time with Logan. There's a lot of history there. um, And for fans, I think it'll be gratifying. But in the end, this is just normal human nature at odds with each other. And I think the same thing about, and I love, this is my favorite part of the movie and it's always been my favorite part of the show, Veronica's relationship with her dad, played by uh, Enrico Colantoni, who was on Just Shoot Me, uh, and obviously Veronica Mars, the original, as as her dad, the other, Keith, the private eye. Um, I just thought it was, it was kind of emotional to see Neptune really fall further down the shithole. Like, it's a worse town now that Veronica left, and Keith can't really handle it on his own, and certainly not the sheriff's department or the police department now run by Jerry O'Connell, uh, asshat Sheriff Dan Lamb. Um, I, I just thought that really, like, the, the weird issues of gentrification and crime and kind of the rich manipulating the law, I, I found all that stuff really interesting and condensed in a palatable way for people who are not fans. Yes, I found all of that stuff interesting, too. If only we could have a whole other new series to explore all of that stuff. <laughs> Bouncing um, back. Yeah, th- there, are, there are kind of threads in the movie that go nowhere, or they're, they're really wrapped up quickly because they don't have time. I wonder if this actually started as a reboot, or if how, how 
individual this was as a movie idea in in thomas's head but well i think they've been trying to bring it back in some form or another for years i mean at one point there was they were trying to make a reboot where she's in, in the fbi which they make a cute little joke about in the movie love that joke yeah. Um, so I, I don't I don't know how much of this is, you know, stuff they came up with a long time ago when they were trying to make a series or whatnot. But, yeah, there are definitely some subplots that don't like there's a whole subplot involving Weevil that I literally don't even remember how it yeah, ends. Yeah, that's a problem. And it also because involves, it has like nothing to do with anything else. Really. It also involves. Oh, what's her name? The wife. Uh, um, Mrs. Kane. Yeah. Who's like in one scene. And that's a little too much stuffing the old show down this movie's throat. I no, think. I literally don't remember how that <laughs> plotline is resolved, which is a problem because I didn't see this movie that long ago. I, right. should, <laughs> I should be able to remember. Um, but another thing that I thought uh, worked pretty well was I feel like I feel like this I feel like when Thomas was making this show, he really had, you know, he really felt this obligation to like give fans what they wanted, which is more Veronica Mars, you know, to bring back old plot threads to bring back old characters and you know like really familiar things but if you but during the movie there were parts where it really seemed but but it also seemed like he does have a good handle on what a what a more mature detective series would look like Hmm. um which is part of why i really I, I thought that this movie was an okay epilogue, but what really got me excited was that it also felt like the beginning of what could be a really exciting reboot. Which now, you know, which how I do you think? How do you think she's matured in this? Do you see the maturity happening on screen in this movie, or is this about someone? I mean, it's the movie's certainly about something. It's about Veronica figuring out her place in the world and how many of us leave high school and college thinking that we need the job that gets us the money, that gets us the good relationships, that puts us in a secure place. And what we really need because of our addictions, our obsessions, is something more dangerous or something less stable. Um, And that's, I mean, I was really happy to see Veronica Mars, the movie, have a thematic thrust, you know? Um, But I wonder how you see the show or, or the format Veronica Mars as a as an entity um, maturing. Um, well, I, since the characters are about ten years older now than they were in the show, you know, it it, it wouldn't work if it would. If, right, it naturally has. Right, it naturally feels a little bit different. And but I thought that he, I mean, the whole thing about Veronica in this movie is that she has gotten past this old life, but she kind of feels it bringing her back. And I thought that that was a really interesting way to look at her and her relationship to Neptune and you know a lot of the characters have moved on like Logan I think is a good example where I was really surprised to see what had happened to him but at the same time thinking back on it it made sense uh so and and but it still has the tone of the old show I think that's important that you know when Veronica gets back in with Mac and with Wallace it's like they're chatting like they would they're joking it's very it's a very funny movie it's very sharp yes uh it's a little bit less cutesy i think now that they're not in high school and it does kind of feel to me like their actions have more weight like one of the subplots is that keith is really upset that veronica seems to be uh in danger of giving up everything that she's worked for which is you know a successful life as a lawyer in new york city um and it's the kind of thing where it's one thing when you're a teenager you know who makes a dumb mistake it's another thing when you're close to 30 and you're in jeopardy of derailing your entire career so it felt a little bit more serious to me in that sense 
I, I mean, the original show was like this too, but it always startles me to see something so loose and real and bouncy, fun, get so violent. I mean, this people die <laughs> in this movie, um, and that's that's kind of scary. And they talk about heavy issues. Now, the show did this as well, um, talking about like suicide and talking about cover-ups and murders. And I, I just I don't see that in movies very much, at least aimed at younger audiences. Um, Especially movies that aren't really like action oriented. Like you kind of think that if someone like these days when someone tries to make a mystery, it seems like it's usually ends up with like a, you know, a massive shootout and heads being ripped off or whatnot. Right. Only. Yeah. I'm thinking of nonstop again. And I'm, I don't think anyone only bad people die in nonstop. There are no casualties which I think is very bizarre. I, I may be incorrect. People can correct me on that, but I, I'm pretty sure that no one dies uh, except baddies. Uh, whereas in Veronica Mars, it's like casualties all over the place. <laughs> uh, and, I, and, I, and that adds to the danger. I think that adds the intensity. Like, yes, the mystery may be simple and you might be seeing the end of it coming a mile away, but the danger is there. Uh, Veronica Mars, when she's fleeing people, when she's put her nose too far into other people's business, she can get caught, and that can be scary. And I think I think Rob Thomas, as a director, really executes that in, a, in a, an effective way. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, just to wrap up on Veronica Mars, uh, I have no other further comments. <laughs> I, I, I was surprised that I enjoyed this movie as much as I did, mostly because the Kickstarter campaign for it uh, became so obnoxious. And I hate to say that because uh, unlike some of my other co-hosts of Fighting in the War Room, I, I endorse Kickstarter. I think it's a great way for people to participate in actual artistic uh, projects and, and ambitions. Some of it... Um, can prey on fandom. Maybe Veronica Mars is guilty of that. Uh, what but exactly? In the end, what exactly bothered you about the Kickstarter? I'm curious. I think it's just the way that it's come to define Kickstarter, or the way that Kickstarter uses it to promote itself. Um, but as evidenced from much, much research after the Veronica Mars Kickstarter, I think it helped a lot of other projects help people discover Kickstarter. So I can't complain on that. I think. Um, I, just the amount of money they made and, and how much I, I wish Kickstarter could give back. I wish the, the project, I wish Rob Thomas and Kristen Bell could maybe give more to the people who helped them make this movie. I was disappointed that during the end credits, there's only a thank you to the Kickstarter participants or donators. Does that make sense? Like not just, Oh, thanks for everyone who contributed. That was very helpful. I, it needed to be everybody's name because oh, it, it, I, Full disclosure, I was one of the I kicked in like ten dollars, mm -hmm. so and I what did you didn't, get? Uh, stickers, and I think they're gonna send me a script or something. I don't know. I just wanted to contribute a little bit because I like the show, and I was I did not even notice that whether or not they had everyone's name, so it didn't bother me, even though I was one of the Kickstarter people. Fair enough. It's not that annoying. I think it's just there's so many Kickstarters out there, and probably really great projects that you wish could get made and I don't, mean, and then. It and did open this Kickstarter can of worms where it seems like now everyone, but that's a whole other conversation not that their we fault. could talk. I can't blame yeah. them. I can't blame them. Look, oh. this was what it this was what it took to get this particular movie made, and you know, I I forgot one thing about Veronica Mars. Here's how we should go out. Gabby Hoffman is in this movie. 
and she is a new character. <laughs> and I'm surprised that there's room for new characters. Like that kind of, I was surprised. Okay, not only are there a few new characters, but I have to, I have to hand it to them. They do such a good job of integrating the new characters that there were definitely some people where I was like, wait, that, right. that person wasn't part of the original show, right? That, like, that's exactly you know, how it's Gabby been a Hoffman's few years character since I feels saw the whole thing. But yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing how like she just fits right into the world and. Because she is an old Neptune High person, I think she was like a year after them or something. Um, mm-hmm. she, I'm like, she must have been on the show before because she fits perfectly and she sounds like a Veronica Mars character. It's perfect. Yeah, Martin Starr is the other one where he fits yeah. so perfectly into that universe that I was, I mean, I knew that he wasn't in it, but I, I definitely had a moment where I was like, he, wait, right? Like, and I'm pretty sure, sure there was a nod to Party Down in uh, the introduction to Martin Starr's character. If, if keen-eyed people are watching, uh, watch for it. I, I, I might be making that up. I might be projecting my love for Party Down onto the Veronica Mars movie, but so be it. They're both great. Um, Angie, so your final final thought on Veronica Mars. Is this a movie to see in theaters, or is it a movie to see on VOD? They both come out the same day. Um, I think it's a movie to see with other Veronica Mars fans, whether it's in theaters or on VOD. I don't think that this is a movie where I'm like, it's like gravity. You have to see in the theater or else you won't get it, uh, which is not surprising. You know, most movies aren't like gravity. Um, I think that it's a movie that non-fans will still be able to get some pleasure out of because, you know, Kristen Bell is incredibly charming as Veronica Mars. And it's, you know, it's a fun story that's well constructed. Uh, but I do think that they'll probably be like, well, that was fun. And then not really think much of it. Whereas fans will definitely want to see this because it's something that they've been waiting a long time for. And that and it's, you know, it delivers on most of what the fans, I think, probably would want to see. All right. Well, that concludes our review of Veronica Mars. Tell us what you think, Marshmallows. Until next time, XOXO Gossip Girl. This week's lightning round question uh, was inspired by Need for Speed. It was, and and though Glenn would not agree with this, uh, it's about cinematic moment that um, provoked a kind of visceral reaction from you. Uh, so, Glenn, what what would you say? What what is your answer here? Uh, well, there is uh, literally one movie in my life that I have seen and had to turn off because I felt physically ill watching it, and that was. Uh, the I think it was 1993 uh, Australian film called Romper Stomper, and it is about neo Nazis uh, and like in the Australian suburb, eastern suburbs of Melbourne, battling uh, the Vietnamese uh, people in the neighbourhood. And it is, and there's a fight sequence. I think it comes about maybe two thirds of the way through, and it is incredibly realistic that I felt so physically ill that I had to turn it off. It is, I don't even want to know how they made that scene because it came off as so realistic. Did, did and, you end up seeing this film back home or is it, did you see this? this oh yeah. I saw this, uh, maybe 
six years ago, just watching it on DVD at home. Uh, it stars Russell Crowe. Uh, oh, yeah, I, I've heard of him. That was kind of his breakout movie. Um, and, yeah, I just... My stomach flipped uh, like a car stunt in Need for Speed. Huh. And <laughs> I... Yeah, I eventually did go back to watch the rest of it once I had like eaten some dry toast and oh I settled my stomach. But yeah, that was a very uh, visceral reaction. Um, the only like equatable one I've had was when I was watching. Oh, shh, don't tell anyone. I was watching a uh, illegal video <gasps> camped uh, copy of The House of a Thousand Corpses. Oh my. That movie didn't even... I don't even recall that movie getting released in Australia, so I don't feel that bad about it. But, yeah, and but the camera work was so bad that, like, it was just, like... It was like the joke that people say about, you know, uh, found footage movies about how they're moving all the time and you get motion sickness. I, it was like that, but even worse. That's hysterical. But, Angie, what is your f- moment, your cinematic moment that gave you a visceral reaction? Well, it is actually several moments. Last year, I saw Rush by Ron Howard, and that was one of the most, uh, you know, uh, I guess gravity aside, that was one of the most visceral experiences I had at the theater last year. Uh, you know, the, all the racing scenes were just, they really put me right there, made me feel like I was in the car with them. It's a combination of, you know, the camera work and the sound people were all really good at making me feel like in the theater like I was sitting there like I I'm pretty sure I was like swaying back and forth with the curves <laughs> of the car at some point I don't know why no one um, no so one that, saw this movie for some reason that to me was it's, it's a sad tragedy of 2013 nobody saw it and I feel like even the people who saw it were just I don't think other people li- like liked it as much as I did but I, I stand by it I mean you know the racing scenes were just incredible. And I'm not even that much of like a car person or like a speed junkie. It was just. just you the, felt it. Yeah. Like my adrenaline was like pumping while I was watching it, even though all I'm doing is sitting very safely in a theater surrounded by lots of other people. And because I'm all alone today, I figured I would pick a few lightning round question answers from you guys. Some of the best or some of the ones that I like the most. Uh, so let me rattle off these. At Niall Dunn said the beating at the beginning of Gaspar Noe's Irreversible. Stopped it, never finished the film. Oh, there was so much more to come. At Niall Dunn. Um, let's see. At Duncan Houst said I was totally swept up in Black Swan's ending that when she leaped at the end, my breath literally escaped me till she landed. Uh, the ballet is so intense in that movie. I, it's, it's always astonishing to me that something that's small scale and um, seemingly uh, safe you know, there's not necessarily danger in it, but they, it, you know, there's a lot of intensity there. Something about Aronofsky's style in that movie, it's it's quite visceral. At Zivza, I don't know if I'm saying that right, Z-I-V-Z-A, says the chase along the highway in Bad Boys 2. The sheer kineticism on display during that scene is phenomenal. Vulgar autorism for life. First off, awesome ending to that tweet. Second, I hate Bad Boys 2, as people on this podcast know. If David was here, he would defend it uh, to death. But um, I think you're referring to that scene where they're throwing corpses out and, like, they're they're chasing and they're dodging the corpses. Oh, I hate that, but I can understand what you mean. Uh, at Disco Shark underscore said, if burying my head between my hands whenever Mavis from Young Adult made a mess out of herself counts, that's the one. Uh, that does count. At... 
Aaron Hammond eighty eight uh, said a moment from the ca- from Cache that is. A spoiler, it is a very violent moment, um, and I'm considering it a spoiler because I love the movie Cachet, easily one of my f- favorite movies of all time, and even though it's how many years old, I'm still going to regard it as a spoiler because you should see that and experience it for yourself. Several people said uh, Cachet and mentioned that. Um, and then I just want to end and say at Nick Abidus. One of my favorite answers this week would be a bunch of Stan Brackage. First ones that pop to mind are Black Ice or Window Water Baby Moving. Not brave enough for act of seeing yet. And that's uh, experimental avant-garde filmmaker Stan Brackage. And Window Water Baby Moving is, I mean, it's a very visceral film because it's a very real film. He's documenting the birth of his first child uh, in all it's wondrous glory. Uh, I would highly recommend seeing all of those films that Nick listed there. Um, so that about wraps this week up for Fighting in the War Room. Thanks for listening. Thanks to all of our guests uh, for participating. And um, why don't we tell people where they can find you on the internet? Glenn. Uh, I tweet obsessively from uh, at Glenn Dunks, just my name, uh, Double N, uh, if people are looking for it, and my webs all my writing kind of goes to the central uh, portal of my website, which is just again www.glendunks.com. Angie, as you mentioned, I write for Slash Film, so people can find my work there, and I'm also on Twitter at ajhan. And I'm Matt Patches. You can find me on the internet at Mr. Patches on Twitter. MattPatches.com is where I put all my work, uh, and until next week. Farewell.